Hello and welcome to an all new episode of The Spotlight. I am one of your hosts, Kente, all the way live from Los Angeles, California. And I'm here joined by my co-host, Jen. How are you doing, Jen? I am great. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Uh, it's been a very interesting week. I've had a lot of uh, interesting things happen. I, some of them I can't talk about. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've had a really good week. It's been a very, uh, the weather's all, as most of the time it is out here in Los Angeles, has been just great. And um, I've been having a good time. And I'm glad to be back doing some podcasting <clears throat> with you, Jen. You're uh, you're preaching to the choir. I live on Maui, so it, when you talk about the weather always being great, um, I'm pretty sure we have a corner on the market there. I'm so so jealous of you. I w- sometimes I wish I could be there with you. That's like one of the few places that I could definitely say that about. So well, you always have a place to come and hang out. Ah, oh, well, th- thank you so much. And we have a lot that we're going to talk uh, talk about on this episode tonight um we're going to be joined in just a few uh by author sakina ibrahim and then after that we have a panel discussion and we're going to talk about uh about can you separate the content from the content creator uh which uh we'll go into more detail when it's time for that but um it, it should make for an interesting topic yeah both i think are going to be really interesting and um, before we in- introduce our guests, um, I don't know, you know, this is a weird time as far as like the different TV programs and stuff that are out. Uh, there's not, I don't know, there's there's nothing really that I'm into at the moment that's, that's playing. Uh, are there any shows that you're watching? Well, <clears throat> I'm a long time Outlander fan, so Outlander's right up there. But I just started watching uh, the sci-fi series that's called Channel Zero. Actually, I watched the, orig- the the first one, too. But the one that's out right now is called The No End House, and it's actually pretty good. Mm, I never heard of that one, uh, the, the No End House. What is that about? Long sci-fi on Wednesday nights, I think. Oh, okay. Is that a sci-fi channel? <clears throat> It, you know, it's crazy. It's it's sci-fi slash horror, I would say. Uh, this particular one, they're built off of creepypasta, which are, you know, the internet uh, urban legend stuff. And this one is a haunted, no, not a haunted house, uh, a house that you go into, which is supposed to be really scary. And I won't give away too much, but let's just say that it's very unexpected what happens to the people inside of this house. Oh wow! You know we're actually gonna do a a show, an episode on creepy pasta a little bit later, so that's pretty cool though. Nice. Uh, yeah. I, is that the one that I think I I think I know what you're talking about now? Like, was that the one that was based on the uh, the one about the the kid what, the kid show? Oh no, that's uh that was Candle Cove. Candle Cove. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was it's interesting. That was that was really good. But No End House has a different uh it's a different production value level and so far the story is it's pretty compelling. It's a lot easier to follow than Candle Cove. Oh, okay. Well, like I said, um I'm looking forward to checking it out cuz right now there's really nothing not, nothing that I'm excited to watch every week, so I think all the the, the good stuff already ended. So, <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's do it. Let's introduce our guests. Uh, I was very very 
lucky to have an opportunity to meet this young lady in person at the Lamert Park Book Fair. I think it was about about two months ago, something like that. Uh, a month ago, two months ago, something like that. And um, we briefly chat. That video is available on YouTube. And now she's on the podcast, and we're going to get to talk to her a little bit more. It's author Sakina Ibrahim. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing great. And thank you so much for having me on. Now, I inter I've interviewed a lot of people. And um, one thing, every time I have someone who is proficient in dance, I always try to make them my uh, personal dance teacher. And hopefully by the end of uh, this episode tonight, uh, I will get an agreement <laughs> to uh, have you as my dance teacher because I definitely, definitely can use that. Okay, let's let, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'll help as much as I can. <laughs> all right, all right. You know, it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll end up having early gray hair probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, <no. laughs> but uh, I'm so I'm so happy that you're that you're here tonight, though. Um, and we're going to talk about a lot of things. And I want to first start off uh, for those who may not be aware of you. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from. And, you know, you are, you know, you do so many things. But some of the, some of the things that you are uh, that you do professionally. My name is Sakina Ibrahim. I'm originally from Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, my background and profession is in dance performance and dance education. Um, I grew up dancing in Springfield um, at the Dunbar Community Center and then with Shooting Star Dance Center with Miss Carol. And I always make it a special point um, to acknowledge Miss Carol Ann Boardway because she was really the first person at 15 years old, you know, who really seen my leadership abilities and qualities and began training me to become a teacher. So, you know, if it wasn't for her, I, I really don't know if I would be as good at what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, getting getting my start at 15, you know, teaching my own classes. Um, and, you know, now I'm only 28 and I'm a professor of dance. I teach at, at Cypress Community College um, in Cypress, California. So that is, you know, one aspect of my pro professional life. Um, I am also an author. I wrote Big Words to Little Me, Advice to the Younger Self, which is an NAACP Image Award nominated book for outstanding literary work. And this book was really inspired by my dance students, who I realized although we were dancing and exploring confidence and self-esteem, you know, through the arts, I felt it was very important to provide young girls, especially young girls of color, with a tool to help inspire them to self-correct and to make positive decisions for themselves. Um, and I sort of use my life as a lens, you know, things that I wish I would have known when I was an adolescent or a teenager um, that I know now. Yeah, and then I just released my second book, which is Daily Moves Affirmations for the Millennial. And this is a 35-day positive affirmation guide. Um, I really reflect on love and confidence and problem solving and just everyday experiences that we have and how we can become aware as we move throughout our daily life. All right, now we're gonna talk a lot about the different books 
that you've written. But I want to kind of circle back. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing to be a dancer, right? To be very good at dancing. But to be 15 and to be a dance instructor, uh, how do you, one, realize that, you know, because that's still very young. How do you, one, realize that not only am I a good dancer, but I can actually teach others to be dancers as well. And uh, you talked about, um, you know, your mentor uh, nurturing, uh, nurturing, you know, that ability. Talk a little bit more about that for me. Sure. So I think that life is sort of full of signs that show you what it is you're supposed to be doing and that sort of help guide you on your path. Now, I look back on my reports from my elementary school teachers and my preschool teachers. You know, they send little reports home about Sakina. And <laughs> I remember seeing one from a kindergarten teacher that was very clear about how bossy I was. Yeah. <laughs> Most of my reports in elementary school are about being bossy <laughs> and talking too much. Right. So, you know, I always had a lot of creative energy. You know, I, I remember being told to, to sit down and sit down somewhere and shut up as a kid, you know, because I, I just had a lot of creative energy and um, I wasn't even quite dancing yet. So as parents, you know, sometimes you don't really know what to tell your kid to do. So I think that by the time I started dancing, which was actually a little late, I was only 10 years old um, when I started really um, focusing on the art and really being like, wow, I love this. I love this. This makes me feel like I have purpose. You know, this makes me feel like I'm supposed to be doing it. Um, by the time that came, that time came, mixed in with this natural ability to lead, right? And this natural um, sort of sort of spirit to be seen and to be heard, um, and you know, not necessarily be be fearful of what other people you know may think when you open your mouth in the room, um, it, it sort of just worked hand in hand, <laughs> I would say, you know, so these elements of my personality and what makes me, me um, you know, at the same time, I grew up in a household where I had, I had a lot of responsibility at a young age. Um, I also credit some part of my love and um, fixation with the body and how it moves to my uncle um, who had a very severe accident when I was young and ended up being um, blind, mute, and paralyzed. Mm. So I knew every day the value that it was to be able to get up and do whatever you want with your body. If it was to reach, you know, to, to reach for something or to <laughs> touch your toes or whatever it was, I had, at a very young age, I had an appreciation for the body. So I think that as I matured, you know, realizing that there's all this research in art um, and art and performance and that, you know, that you could study dance, you know, it really just kind of spoke to my heart. You know, I don't think, I don't know what I would be doing if it wasn't for this, this powerful tool, you know, of, of dance and art. And, Sure, it was a lot of responsibility at a young age. You know, I remember, I think I was getting paid $15 an hour, which, you know, dance class is usually one hour. So I was getting, you know, $15 cash in an envelope. And, you know, my mom trying to teach me discipline over that $15. And I was like, I'm going to blow it. Like, it's $15. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I'm going to, to this is my bus fare for the week and I'm and I'm buying all the lunch I want. <laughs> you know, at school. <laughs> you know, but but having that much responsibility at at a young age really prepared me for everything that I'm doing now. Um and and I'm really I'm grateful. I'm I'm very grateful that um, you know, Miss Miss Carol and my other mentors like like Jody Falk, um, you know, seen and recognized something special, you know, in me. They didn't give everybody those opportunities. You know. hmm. I rec- I can recall at the uh, Lamert Park Book Fair that there was a a man in a wheelchair in at your booth. Was that your uncle? That was not my uncle. My uncle actually passed away oh. um, last last year. Um, so rest in peace, Uncle Quarrel. Um, the man in the wheelchair was my partner, though. Life is ironic in a way that, <laughs> you know, you fall in love, you know, with somebody who happens to also be in a wheelchair. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is. <laughs> that sounds like a book in itself. Life. Yeah, that's, can... a, that's another book. I'm still working on working on what that one looks like. Wow, wow. Okay, so... Um, so, you know, you're at a, such a young age, you're, you know, an accomplished dancer, and then you decide, you know what, I need to write a book, which, you know, a lot of us, we say we, we want to write a book, never get around to it, you know, we're going to write a book, we're going to write it, we're going to write it, but you actually did it. So let's talk about your first book, and, you know, how did you get the idea, and what, you know, and give us a little more background on the on, on the book. Sure. So the idea for Big Words to Little Me, Advice to the Younger Self, came from working with these middle school girls at, I think it was Crozier Middle School in Inglewood, while I was in graduate school, and my research was on dance and youth empowerment, specific with, a, uh, with the specific focus on black youth. Now, you know, my alma mater is, is, is in Orange County, so there's not really... Um, black youth in Orange County. <laughs> so I was traveling every week, multiple times a week to Inglewood just to like have access to some black kids and to develop this curriculum on, you know, what are the obstacles and challenges you have as an adolescent, um, specifically as an adolescent black girl and will acknowledging your roots in Africa empower you? That was pretty much my thesis question. Will acknowledging African ancestry empower black youth? So in my research process, we did traditional African dance. I traveled to Ghana and learned, um, you know, learned Achia Togo and Agjobo, like very specific dances from the village that hadn't been adapted very much. You know, they hadn't been commercialized. So I taught these girls these dances. We talked about jazz and the Harlem Renaissance. Um, we pretty much worked our way down to contemporary, you know, hip hop dance. And I learned so much from them, really. <laughs> I learned a lot from them about, you know, just how how amazing and limitless the creativity of these black dancing bodies are. You know, it was a really beautiful process. But in the midst of that, issues like sex came up, issues like, you know, violence in the community, you know, issues about their body image and self-esteem, you know, being hypersexualized at a young age. So these 
challenges were coming up. Friends, you know, I have a friend who wants me to do this and a friend who wants me to smoke. You know, <laughs> like, you know, just regular peer pressure, bullying. Nothing that we haven't experienced as adults. Nothing we didn't experience in middle school. But I found myself saying, you know, I wish somebody would have told me, you know, that you're in control of your own life and the decisions you make today will have a consequence. What do you want that consequence to be? Or somebody would have told me, here's a long list of all the professions that you can have so that you, you don't have to become a stripper. You don't have to become a drug dealer. You don't have to have a whole bunch of kids and get a welfare check. You don't have to, you know what I mean? These things that they were exposed to as sort of being a part of their normal, you know, I really wanted to challenge what their idea about reality was. So, you know, it was really focused on my own healing, my own healing and the experiences that I had, you know, as a young person and reflecting on my friends' experiences you know, friends who had parents who were drug addicts and we didn't know. You know what I mean? It's just real life stuff. It's not even, you know, we is it's so normal. You know, it's more normal than what I wish it was. So anyways, I I really um wanted to help these young people to be able to define themselves and to feel confident about themselves and have hope for their future. So I started journaling. And I started thinking, what did I wish I knew when I was their age? And I came up with, with eight chapters. Um, so I talk about loneliness. I talk about the environment and our communities and the households we grow up in. Um, of course, self-esteem, what that really is. Um, how negative messages become a part of our inner narrative and how we can change them. Um, education, taking responsibility education, which, you know, again, my book is written for black girls. So I talk about the importance of reading and literacy and how important we should know it is because for African-Americans, our ancestors weren't allowed to read, you know, so that should let you know how important it is for right. you to be serious about education, you know, um, which is difficult, you know, especially in dysfunctional public schools. It's, it's dif a difficult notion, but you have to do your part. You know, you have to do your best and take advantage of what you what you do have. Um, and then my favorite chapter is the last chapter. It's called I'm Possible. Um, every, everything's impossible, but I'm possible, right? So always looking at yourself as a possibility and looking at difficult circumstances and challenges as opportunities. Mm. Yeah, so like that's that. how, how big words to little me came to be i like that uh you seem like maybe you were a, a person quite like myself that um even though you're very young that uh you, you're an, would you consider yourself an old soul absolutely yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i've been told that my whole life mm -hmm. and even you know my circle of friends most of my friends are well past 30 you know, the old souls. I, I connect with elders. I, I have long conversations with elders and people that I uh, adopt as aunties and uncles. You know, I just feel better understood sometimes. I, I, <laughs> by like, those people. I was like that too, and now I'm kind of caught up to <laughs> in uh, years uh, the old soul that I am. So uh, I, I, maybe I'm I'm at where I need to be or whatever when I was like you know twenty something or whatever. So, <laughs> but um, so 
Okay, so um, how long ago did, this, did the book come out? The book was released in 2015. 2015, so that you know, that was only a couple of years ago. What was yeah. like? The, what are some of the responses that you got as far as uh, you know people who read the book and what what was their takeaway? You think based on the conversations you've had with people who read it? You know, I had no idea that the need was so big. I have had very well known, you know, professors and educators send books back to South Africa because they have grandchildren and family there and they realize how important it is to see yourself in literature. I have had, you know, I've read the Amazon reviews of, you know, parents, even not, you know, non-black parents or non-brown parents who say, you know, that this book really helped to normalize the emotional challenges that their children was having or that the book helps mothers and daughters to connect, you know, because sometimes as children, <laughs> you really resent your mom sometimes or you rebel against your mom. You know, I did. It was like, let me do everything opposite that she's telling me to do. Um, so that the book really from an early stage at seven, if we're reading and doing this work together and developing a dialogue about what it is to come of age, Right, and what it what it is to have certain expectations of yourself and the other women and men around you. And, you know, I think we're being that's to me that's a part of innovation, you know, that's part of of growing as a community and building a positive community. Um, I've had a woman who lived through Jim Crow era in the South say that she never truly because of experiencing that level of violence. She never truly knew her self-worth, but that the book, and this is, you know, this one was well over 60, but that the book, Big Words to Little Me, helped her to value herself and to know that she was worthy, you know? So I, you know, my little 28 years of life, <laughs> I had no idea, you know, that it would have this impact, you know, that it would have an international impact, and then... You know, I do empowerment workshops because the book has different exercises in it. So I use the arts and the theater background that I have and do empowerment workshops. So I've been able to go to a school in Philadelphia um, for a couple years now and work with um, an ROTC group. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, by the end of the workshop, everybody is in tears. And, I, you know, I've heard things like nobody's ever asked me what I wanted to be. And I'm like, you're in school eight hours a day. How come nobody, how come nobody's asking these kids what they want to be to think outside of the hood and their circumstances, you know? So just somebody taking the time to listen to them, right? And to like instill a positive message to them. I didn't know it was so valuable. I should have known, <laughs> but I, you know, I didn't know it, it was so valuable. Um, so I don't take the work lightly. I don't take you know, the, the message and the book lightly either. You it's know, very uh, I, I have two daughters and everything that you're saying right now is 100% inside the struggle that they go through on a daily basis. So, and you, I think you totally hit right on it. There's something interconnected about not just understanding where you're from and how to embrace that, but there's something really positive 
understanding the interconnectivity between how you feel about yourself and what your potential is. It's mm. not just self-esteem. It's something far greater. Yeah. I, th this this work is amazing work. I mean, of, of everything that I so far know about you, this is probably, I think, this is legacy worthy. So you have my 100% thanks. Thank you. Thank you. That was powerful. I received all of that. <laughs> Thank you. Now, this is 2015. You, you, you released this book and, uh, you know, you got such a great response. Um, what is like, okay, so what's the next step? Like, you, you, re you release this book, it's getting these great responses, you're going around, and then what are you thinking now? Like, you know, uh, you know, after the book came out and you got such great responses, what was like the game plan as far as going forward? Well, let me reverse a little bit and just like make it known that I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anything about self-publishing or printing or, you know, what it was to invest in yourself or the editing process or I didn't know nothing. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. But what I did have was intuition in like a strong prayer life I'll tell you that um, you know to really ask questions and you know write lots of emails and listen to lots of YouTube tutorials about what to do so I say that to say that you know in terms of writing or anything that anybody wants to pursue where they don't have experience in it yet if it's something that you feel you know so passionate about you know this book was in my dreams like, I seen the cover. I, it was, like, a very divine, powerful thing that I had to do. And I'm like, I'm a dance teacher. Like, let me go teach my five, <laughs> six, seven, eight, and go home. Like, what? <laughs> what do you mean, you know? Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you just feel something so strong. You have to follow that feeling, and you can't make any excuses for yourself. And even how the Image Award nomination came about, that was a random email that I got. You know, I, I put the book on Amazon and, like, sold it at my dance studio, made a million calls and emails to get a publishing deal, which has not happened yet. Um, you know, posted it on my Facebook and Instagram. Maybe at that time I had, like, 500 Instagram followers. And it wasn't really a, so much about sales, you know, it wasn't really so much about that. Really, all of the benefits and the blessings came from following my gut, you know, and not being attached to money and not being attached to results, but being attached to serving. Mm -hmm. That That's where the blessings came from. Wow. Um, and then I just, you know, I let it go. I thought that my second book was going to be a, a, like a part two or a big word to little me for boys or something like that. But it's just not really how it, how it happens. Um, you know, I had that same kind of feeling about having a book for millennials, short and sweet and, you know, one page, you know, devotional sort of, <laughs> sort of book that, because we don't, you know, not everybody likes to read anymore and we're attached to our phones and just this fast, fast, fast paced um, society we live in so even me as a writer I like have to carve out time to finish this, something that I'm reading you know and give myself deadlines because we're just so bombarded with 
all forms, all, so many different forms of media. Um, so just having conversations with my girlfriends, like at the age that we're in now as millennials, you know, there's a lot of still, you know, there's a lot of suicide out there. There's a lot of comparing yourself to other people and what you do and don't have because you have access to everybody's life because of social media, you know? So it's only natural that you're going <laughs> to compare yourself and say, well, oh, okay, well, I don't have that. Or I must not be cool because I'm not in Vegas this weekend or I'm not popping bottles here. Or I'm, you know what I mean? You just kind of constantly compare yourself and you have to just be a strong willed person and really in tune with who you are, you know, not to do that to the point where it's destructive, you know, to the point where you're jealous or, you know, where you're sad or depressed. Um, and like, not for nothing that again, social media is like the highlight reel. That's not really real life. Like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not real life. You mean Instagram so, ain't real? <laughs> <laughs> the, the concept behind Daily Moves, you know, came... I, I guess maybe November of 2016. Yeah, November of 2016. You know, I had just that same feeling, the same idea to to write something short that would appeal to millennials, mm-hmm. um, and that you could have positive daily guidance in. So That's yeah, awesome. this is a very sort of intuitive process. I I really. Book two, there's a little more strategy, obviously. I learned a lot lessons, a lot a lot mm-hmm. of lessons with book one. Um, but sometimes you have to just go with the flow. It's not always a plan. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, let me ask you a question. I, I'm, I'm not a millennial, but, um, you know, people from my generation and older, you know, we have uh, our thoughts about the millennial generation, right? So what are some things do you think that, maybe we uh that you've heard that maybe we don't understand about millennials or that or maybe they're misunderstood possibly so i think the generation before us that there's misconceptions about us being lazy and not wanting to work i think that's one of the big biggest things versus understanding that there's a shift happening in what we call work mm-hmm. right and that you know i feel like generations before us lives to go to work to go like work nine to five and to get a 401k and go on their family vacations and like there was just a certain amount of stability because at that time the world was smaller mm-hmm. i mean the world was bigger right. now i think because of technology the world is smaller and i mean you can be in a different country tomorrow with a 400 dollars flight if right. you want but you know right, what I mean? right, like yeah. just access to the world is very easy you know access to different perspectives and alternative lifestyles and religion and what we eat like there's just information is so disposable information is literally in the palm of our hands so and if you think about it well even this conversation you're in cyprus i'm in west la and jen is in hawaii you know right. you know just that alone i've had conversations with people in malta and you know places i even knew existed until you know we did uh, the did the show so it's pretty cool uh how the world has gotten smaller in a way mm-hmm. and there is more access to to uh different parts that you know when i was a little kid wasn't 
you know, that wasn't possible unless you wanted to have a million dollar uh, long distance phone bill. <laughs> so, exactly. Right. Exactly. So I think that, you know, that's probably the, the biggest perspective that that's probably the most different, you know, mm-hmm. amongst our, the millennial generation um, is how we see the world. You know, and we're at an interesting time where we're all of the things that have to do with, um, you know, violence and racism and, you know, specific people dictating to you what the truth is and what it is you have to believe. Now you're in a space where you can have dialogue and conversation with people from all over the world to help you expand that perspective and to help you decide for yourself what your truth is, you know, and I don't know. I guess twenty years ago wasn't that easy. <laughs> it was what was in the history book was in the history book. Like you know, you had to dig deep and spend a lot of time in the library to find something else to find something different. But that's so true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say this: the millennials did kill rap music. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. What about Joey Badass? What about Kendrick? Kendrick was cool. He's cool. Kendrick gets the pass. Okay. What about J. Cole gets a pass? Dave East. Who? Dave East. <laughs> like I, I I'm so old school. <laughs> I do I'll tell you this. Most of my hip hop classes we're we're old school until like the last day. <laughs> then I'll play something current. So I can't completely disagree with you. Because the music was just better. I'm like, what do you mean? We're definitely rocking to Busta Rhymes right now. What do you see, mean? <laughs> there you go. I love you know, it's, it's funny because um, I, although I wasn't around for it, it, when I look back into, the, into history, <clears throat> the social dynamic of what's happening now, and, and I, you know, I can almost see sort of a, the, the same kind of shift happening um, from one, it, it sort of skipped a couple generations, but the people who grew up in the 60s and the people who are around now who are at that age, it, there's there's a different societal shift, a different cultural shift, a different, um, a different well, a cultural shift is probably the best I can come up with, but I can see so many different parallels. And it's funny because now I think we have a lot of people like you who can mentor people who are discovering sort of the big world out there mm-hmm. with guidance, with mm-hmm. a, a degree of metered wisdom. And what they will go off and discover will be far greater than the things that their predecessors were able to access. That in and of itself is, I think, one of the greatest gifts, if you will, of technology that we have. For sure. I definitely agree. I was listening to a really great interview um, with Erica Badu. I think it was on Ebro in the morning show. And she was talking about her children and being able to see humanity evolve through their through her children. You know, about those gender norms and, you know, um, racial dynamics and all these things that really confine us and, and separate us as humanity she sees those expectations going away yes for sure and and you're right it's right through your kids which is why i feel like what you especially uh especially the your message to younger people and, and especially to younger women is so powerful because that 
kind of wisdom is not wisdom that you get to read in a history book. It's not wisdom you can learn in some sort of even even really in an actuary kind of way. It's stuff that somebody needs to mentor to you. And that comes through. That definitely comes through. Yeah. Now, now um, before uh, we say goodbye, um, I'm going to put both Jen and Sakina on. <laughs> I'm going to put both of you guys on the spot. Um, now, me and Jen has never done this before. So this will be the first time. We're going to actually do uh, a segment called uh, Rapid Fire, where me and Jen will pepper you with questions back and forth. Uh, not necessarily about, you know, uh, either your uh, being an author or dance or stuff. Just a little, you know, little stuff to get to know you a little bit better. So me and Jen haven't done this before, so uh, uh, it'll be fun, though. All right. All right. So, um, but before I do that is, now you have a, you have a excellent toolbox. It, you know, you are a dancer. You're an author as well. Uh, I'm sure there's probably things that I that isn't in your bio that you can you can do as well, but I see that you're you're an actress as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So talk talk yeah. about that a little bit. Uh, uh, and I see you have some credits, uh, some things coming out and whatnot. Yeah, I got a little credit. Okay, so I started acting in middle school. Really, dance and theater are simultaneous to me. You know, they they go together. Um, as well as music and I, I went to a performing arts high school so we just did everything um so i got my first job like at 17 years old um, with a film company called sally walker george films um in the uk and i was the first you know acting um and choreography job that i did to, to really get on imbb so it's really cool <laughs> um i've done a couple independent films i've done some plays in new york um, in the last probably year and a half, I spent a, about a year and a half really studying in New York um, with Susan Batson, who is an amazing acting teacher and coach. She works with Oprah and really sort of anybody, Denzel Washington, Spike Lee's films. She's very brilliant. Um, so I, I feel like the last two years have been actually training as an actress um, and working on my craft, nice. um, you know, as, as an actress. So really it's just sort of expanding the artist in me, you know, it, it really serves, serves the other work that I do in terms of, you know, working with young people and, and teaching dance and creating work and, you know, being entrepreneurial. Um, I, I just look at it as a, as another tool. Um, in your box. Yeah, that's so funny. Thanks for acknowledging that, though. Sometimes I, I forget, and then sometimes I also don't want to talk about doing 50,000 things, <laughs> you know, because people lose focus. They're like, what does what she do again? So, <laughs> no, no, I think that's pretty cool. I got to definitely yeah. check you out in some stuff. So, uh, and uh, you said, so did you, do you sing as well? I do sing. Oh wow! Wow, I, I I can't even say I do. Like I haven't really, I haven't sung in a long time. I haven't sung in a long time. Um, but I do have the, the talent to sing. Oh, see, nice. this, this young lady can do it all. Everybody, <laughs> so that, that's pretty cool. All right, so all right, so now we're at the point of the show we call Rapid Fire. And like I said, it's gonna be me, uh, me, then Jen. We'll go back and forth, and we'll ask you. Uh, questions to kind of get to know you a little bit even closer okay okay buddy so i'll take the first question 
Um, a couple of years ago at Coachella, they did a hologram concert for the rapper Tupac. What dead artist or band would you like to see a hologram concert of? I would absolutely like to see Michael Jackson. Yeah, oh, I love Michael. Yeah. Wouldn't you have loved to have a chance to, to uh, dance with Michael? I, after he passed away, I cried playing his video game because I missed my chance to dance for him. Real quick, I actually met him at a, um, at a, I don't know if you know where the Beverly Center is, uh, but there used to be a rec hall there. And this was years ago. They actually, it was like in the middle of the night. I used to work at the movie theaters, like the late 90s. And he came in and they closed the place down. And yeah, and we and then he actually, me and my friends were huddled up like, oh, we got to go talk to him. And then he came up behind us and he was like, hi. And we almost passed out. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah it was That was incredible. I, I went to see Janet Jackson last week um, and I said, I, I have to go. I was like, I don't care how much tickets so I have to go because I cannot miss the opportunity to see her since I, I miss seeing Michael Jackson. No, nah, that's pretty cool. So I, I had to get that in. So, Jen, go ahead. Hit her with a question. All right. What would you suggest as the number one most, or I should say this differently, what do you think the number one most altruistic thing you've ever done is? Nicest thing for human beings. Oh, wow. The nicest thing for human beings that I have done. This shouldn't be hard. Um, I, if I see somebody homeless, like sitting outside a restaurant or Starbucks, I'll bring food out for them. Oh, that is nice. Yeah. Hmm. Now, you know, I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting you in person and Sakina is in a phenomenal uh, shape, but what is your favorite <laughs> guilty pleasure junk food? What? Okay. It's not really a junk food, but I love raisinets. <laughs> like that's just how much of a health nut I am. Because <laughs> this chocolate color covered raisin, raisinets I love. I also love popcorn mm. and double um, double chocolate donut from Dunkin' Donuts, which there's not a lot in California. That's the East Coast thing. But a double chocolate donut from double Dunkin' Donuts. That's that's where it's at right there in Chicago. In Chicago, I was there last year. Like literally, if you just throw a rock in the air, you're gonna hit a Dunkin' Donuts. Yes, that's how life should be. You don't even need to like. You don't even need to know where one's at. Just drive about five minutes, you're gonna find one. And you'll find one. Uh, yeah. Same, same thing in New York. Same, same thing. Yeah. Yes. All right, go ahead, Jen. All right. What's your most favorite of all time movie? Mm. What's love got to do with it, Tina Turner? Oh, <laughs> absolutely and that movie became even more important because you know the scenes where she she's chanting nam yo renge kill i actually started practicing nichiren buddhism three years ago and when a friend of mine introduced me or you know told me about the practice i was like i know this from my favorite movie like i was like this is like meant to be um so yeah absolutely that's my my favorite movie second favorite is selena Oh, Selena. Oh, another good yeah. choice. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, a, that's a good one. All right, so here's a, the final question. We ask this to everybody is you got to help a brother out, okay? Now, you're you're based in uh, Cyprus, right? So we can tailor this for Cyprus. Um, I'm actually um, in, in South Orange County. Okay, I'm well, closer to Laguna Beach. We can, we can do it for there. 
All right, a young man is taking a young lady out on a date in, the, in where you're at, and he needs your help. So tell him the best date to take a young lady out on in your town. The best date in my town. So first I would say that you need to ask if you can pick her up. That's important. Um, you can also bring a single flower, not red, that's too much for a first date, maybe like white, orange, or pink. You can bring a single flower. Um, then I would take her to Mozambique, which is like a rooftop restaurant um, in, in Orange, in Laguna Beach, and you can see the ocean. And I would take her around like 6.30 so that you can see the sunset. Um, and then go on a, a night that they have the live music so you can go dancing after. Oh, okay. What if they can't dance though? That's all the more reason to go. Oh, okay. Just, <laughs> just, just go. Just go and make a fool out of yourself. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I like it. So one day I will do the Sakina uh, date, and if it works well, I will take credit for it. If it doesn't work well, I said you need to go. Uh, go to uh, talk, talk to that lady Sakina. about it. <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show. You were awesome. Uh, and once again, uh, remind us uh, what are the name of the books and also how can we get our hands on them and how can we hit you up in social media and uh, if you have any um, uh, film projects too that we need to be on the lookout for. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time talking to you. Um, and you can get my books on Amazon.com or com. The titles are Big Words to Little Me, Advice to the Younger Self, and Daily Moves, Affirmations for the Millennial. Um, I have a couple concerts coming up, nothing in film right now, but I do have a Cypress College Celebration of Dance concert coming up, and then I have some students performing at YAGP, um, which is an international ballet competition um, coming up. So if you're interested in attending one of those, um, you can reach me on Instagram or Facebook at Sakina underscore world. Sakina underscore world. All right. And one last question. I, I'm shocked I didn't start off with this. Your name, Sakina Ibrahim. Um, uh, what does it mean? Sakina Ibrahim. Well, Sakina means divine presence. Oh, wow. So like the, the presence of peace and tranquility. Oh, wow. I, that's a very beautiful name. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you once again, and I'll be looking forward to everything you have in the future. Thank you so much. All right, now. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. All right. Peace. All right. That was a great interview. Uh, that was really cool. Uh, I Like I said, I, I had a very brief moment to to meet Sakina um, at the Lamert Park Book Fair, and um, I just knew that it was going to make for a, a great interview and we're waiting for sherry and ben, ben to come into the to the conversation so go ahead and uh, hop in uh, sherry and ben but uh so what did you think i i think that sakina is the definition of a beautiful human yes yeah it, really and not just for the old soul wisdom stuff but just for the there's something really awesome about listening to everything that she's done so far it's just amazing boy puts you to shame right we need to get to work Kinte. yeah i know right i mean to be 28 and has done so much and she looks she looks so young like i thought i thought she was like barely 20 
when I said she looks so young in person. So, uh, oh yeah, I want to welcome uh, Benjamin Tuttle uh, to the program. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. Just a little tired today. All right, Always. all right. So we're, we're waiting for Sherry to join us, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ben. See, I've been doing mostly with Shinema and animated stuff for close to ten years now. It's real close to 10 years. I started out with the movies, then I went into iClone and did some stuff. Got into a few film festivals. So I have a degree in filmmaking. I have a drafting design degree as well. And yeah. All right. Well, welcome back to the show, Ben. It's been a while, but I'm glad that you were here. All right. And also joining us, we have Sherry. Andrea, how you doing, Sherry? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Really good. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Sherry. Um, I am a Sherry Andrea, spiritual teacher, coach, intuitive channel. Basically, I help people find themselves. Uh, I help people that are working along their spiritual path. Occasionally do channeled readings for people who are working on spirituality, law of attraction, and manifestation. Oh wow, I wish I I wish I knew you when I was like seventeen. <laughs> I could have used you back then, man. I mean well I was, shoot, I guess I'm still trying to find myself, so, <laughs> so Yeah, I yeah, I help people in that way. Well, I am so glad that you are here and uh, you are a fantastic podcaster, and we're trying to get you back into the game so that uh, you know that you can um, do your wonderful show. So yes, very soon. Very soon. That's cool. All right. So the reason why I've assembled this panel, and of course we have Jen here, is uh, there's a film coming out. Uh, I guess it might be technically out now, um, called uh, Jeepers Creepers Three. And uh, Jeepers Creepers 3 is a horror film. And the director, writer, creator is this man named Victor Salva. And you may be aware of Victor Salva's work. Uh, Victor Salva, um, of course, he directed and wrote Jeepers Creepers 1 and 2. I hear somebody's TV in the background. Um, uh, he, he wrote and directed Jeepers Creepers 1 and 2. And he also directed the film Powder as well. So, uh, you know, he had some work that, you know, did very well. And it came out that he is a convicted pedophile. And um, now just to, as a disclosure, you know, I really did enjoy both Jeepers Creepers 1 and 2. Uh, very much so liked the film. Didn't find out about his past until after I saw uh, those two films. And uh, so now the third one's coming out. It's been about 20 years or so since the last one uh, or something like that, very close to that. And um, there's a lot of controversy about people who are fans of the first two who didn't know who, what he was. Um, should they support the film being what he is? And also, uh, just in general, uh, this conversation is going to be about can you separate the content from the content creator? So um, I think I, I want to first start off with uh, with uh, you, Jen. Um, you know, uh, you know, this is a very complicated uh, conversation, and I guess we're going to go in a lot of paths. But um, can you separate the content from its creator? 
Well, first, I just want to acknowledge and, and say that under no circumstances do I think that any of the things that he is accused of are good, okay, none of that. And I don't think that anybody who would venture out to see the film, uh, you know, watch it on digital content, whatever, I don't think anybody would condone that either. In terms of separating the content from the creator, that's a really difficult question. And the answer for me is really complicated. Um, I don't feel like I have an obligation to support, especially sort of the heinousness of what I know, you know, kind of that happened and the reason that he went to jail in the first place. On the other hand, it is very difficult or would be very difficult for me to tell other people, hey, don't go see this because, um, you know, in, in, in conversation, if that came up, then yes. But this is really complicated. It, it, I think it is as complicated as if somebody had been, let's say, uh, convicted of murder. And then we gave them, you know, spotlight chair to become uh, a director and make money, profit off of it. I think that's the problem that most people have is that there's this direct profit sense uh, that people get about supporting the film. And then that, by extension, would support him. Mm. Uh, very well said. Uh, what about you, Ben? Um, can you separate the content from the content creator? Mm-hmm. Well, with the film, it's hard to compare, though. Uh, let's see. I say there are elements you can. There's a theory going around that you're the pen of your own work. But in a large Hollywood setting, you have like 300 people helping you make this production. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of your personal feelings can go into a production quite easily. And the more personal it is, the smaller the crew, the more personal the film. Um, with Victor Selva, you could, yeah, you could see the, you know, you can, I don't know, you can actually notice some trends of work, some anger, some bitterness. You know, it, it kind of flows through, you know, it kind of depends on who the director is and everybody else and how personal they take their production. If you ever seen people project like personal projects of directors like pet pro, you know, um, like the years they spend in, you can tell how frustrated or if they're like making jabs, they'll sneak it in or anything like that. So once you kind of really, really analyze it, you'll know. Sometimes, sometimes they're there author of their own work, and you'll find things like they'll you'll find a lot of personal stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Well, I, I, now I want to add in this specific the thing about uh, Victor Salva that the, the movie in question, Jeepers Creepers Three, he's not just a hired director. He is the director, the writer, the producer, the creator. You know, he's this is his baby. So, th- you know, this is not like they just hired some guy to direct it. This is his baby. This is his machine that he started and created. So, you know, um, so I just wanted to make sure that that's understood you know and I, I, I'm gonna go to you Sherry like I'm gonna ask the same question and then I'm gonna uh, follow it up with something but can you separate the content from the content creator um I would like to say yes but this isn't just what he was accused of 
wasn't just shoplifting, um, a, you know, a battery, um, breaking and entering. So I would be, if, if I knew about him, I would be watching his movie the whole time, wondering, is he still that person? Mm-hmm. You know, is he still that person? I'd be wondering, okay, are there any children in this production? Mm-hmm. Um, that's That was a big question. Okay, well, maybe if there's no children in this production, maybe there'll be children in his next production. I think I'd be thinking about all those things at the same time. Um, we've known a lot of artists in the past who've had mental disorders, but this isn't just somebody being bipolar. Right. This is someone that's a pedophile, and we don't know if he saw as a problem. He could be working on the set and then going home and doing God knows what, watching God knows what. The question becomes, does he still have a problem? Mm-hmm. Has I mean, I don't know. The only thing I didn't see is whether or not he talked about to anyone uh, whether he sought help, whether he was in therapy, um, wh- what he did, what did he do? Did he just um, go to prison, do his time, get out, but not seek therapy, not get help? Did he just, you know, go back to normal life, doing what he's doing as though everything's normal? You know, you know what's so in- interesting about what you said is, um, and I'm gonna go back to Jen. Jen, you told me something before the show started, and I didn't hear this, that there's something in the third movie, potentially, that it kind of like, it, it kind of says like, uh, what he did wasn't right, or I, I'm, I don't wanna, um, I don't wanna quote you, but I, I'll just let you say, what, what was it that was in the film that was controversial that you had heard about? So, so as the writer of this film, of course he had a huge heavy hand in writing the script, and one of the, uh, characters basically makes a joke about uh not being able to help i mean it's, uh, i forgot exactly what the quote is but it's something like you know can you blame the person for you know like look at them uh, what the heart wants what the heart wants right and mm. that and and they're talking about uh i think they're talking they're well i know they're talking about uh, a young kid and that in and of itself is sort of, you know, it's distasteful, but it, but it's in the context of what we already know about him, it makes it a thousand times more difficult to stomach because he, as the writer, he, he is acutely aware of his past. I think he's also acutely aware of the fact that, you know, people aren't going to embrace him with open arms and yet he still had the gall sort of the in your face audacity to put that into the script and that really is i just feel like that is way over the top does it does it matter to you if the person or does it change things if the person seems to be uh you know that they they've asked for forgiveness they've done things to you know, I, I, I'm gonna go back to Sherry for this. Um, you know that they've actually sought help. Does that make? Would it make it easier if you could? Uh, if you knew that he had sought help, he he. You know, he wanted to be forgiven, and he's taken steps to it. Uh, would that make any difference to you? 
Yeah, I think it would make a difference um, instead of just going about your life as though none of that happened. So I think it would make a difference because you would see the person, oh, okay, he's making an effort. Maybe he's also openly admitting, okay, I had some problems, I did some things wrong, and I'm trying to be open about it. Um, trying to say that I got help because I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. But I don't know if he ever did that. Did he ever say, I don't want to be this. I don't want to ever do this again. Um, it was a mistake. You know, I don't know if he ever said that. I mean, and I can't help but think, okay, what about the victim? Okay, he supposedly only has one victim. But there are people out there, we've known people, we've even known actors that have killed themselves because of what has happened to them in the entertainment industry in Hollywood, they've killed themselves. And we know it's directly related to the, the, the physical abuse that they suffer, the sexual abuse they suffer. Mm-hmm. His victim knows he's back out there making these movies that he once again is out there and could potentially have contact with children. So you also have to think about what the victim is seeing. Mm-hmm. And what the victim is thinking. Sometimes it victimizes them all over again. Now, there's this thing that people are talking about, like, if I go to see this movie or, you know, we're, we're going to use Victor Salva mainly as the example that we're using. But if I go to see this movie, I'm putting money into his pocket. Um, now, you know, as Ben said, you know, as we know that hundreds of people work on a film. So, you know, I've heard the argument that, well go to support everyone else involved into it. You know, that's what, you know, I've, I've heard that argument. Um, but, you know, I'm going to go to you, Jen, and then, uh, then, I'll, then Ben. Um, what about that notion of if I'm going to this movie, I'm supporting a pedophile? You know, is that, you know, is that something that we should give pause to? That, uh, that um, you know, that you are putting money in this guy's pocket? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to say that the average person is pretty well cut off from actual production, from Hollywood, from any place where, you know, we sort of understand the inner mechanisms of movie making. And the only voice that we have as sort of the general audience, the, the public, is with our pocketbook. And if we don't say something by saying okay you know look this movie was terrible i'm not going to see it again that's one way of you know voicing displeasure and maybe you give it a, a negative score or something like that but you still went to go see the movie in this case i think the the power of removing financial gain from the from the movie from everybody involved is a little bit more it's a little bit deeper and there's very few instances where i can think of that this would be the appropriate real response i mean everybody told me not to go see this is not this is a horrible comparison in fact i'm not even going to use it the 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 idea though that as a as a body of public as a as a group you have to tell other hollywood producers hey don't hire this guy is by basically hitting them in the pocketbook and saying, 
okay, well, we're not going to watch your stuff unless you decide to change your tune. Don't hire him. We feel like this is a danger. And that's really the only voice that we have. If you, if you say something, if you make a big, uh, if you make a big conversation out of it, if you have lots of discussions on the internet, but you still go see the movie and you're still paying for it, then you're still basically giving them the the power over you in the sense that you've already paid for the content. The, that's the, Personally, I feel like in situations like this, it is very difficult not to feel helpless. And the only way to sort of feel more empowered is you know, yes, make your voice be heard, but also make sure that you're not supporting things that you don't feel like you have 100% moral authority to really put your power into that. If you don't feel like you have that, don't do it. Hmm. Well, what about you, Ben? Uh, uh, you know, would you, if somebody who just really wants to see this film and they said, you know, they hate, you know, obviously they hate what he did, but they want to see this film. Um, you know, this notion of you're putting money into the, a pedophile's pocket, uh, would you, how do you look at that? That's a t tough question. Um, supposedly, like I said, she has the point, like, the only way to really stop him is to, is, is to uh, you know, don't go to the film, boycott, you know, if enough people, like, if you, they make miss after miss after miss. They probably won't work with the director, but odds are, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like his uh, his reputation took quite a hit too. You know, you know. I don't think many people are going to really go see it. I don't know. No, uh, you know, because the movie is only coming out, I believe, one night. And uh, and then it's going straight to like on demand DVD and whatnot. So, uh, you know, I mean, and should we look at the the actors and everybody that worked on the film cross-eyed because they worked with him? Uh, you I, know, I know that I, people need jobs, but you know, I don't know at this point. You know, it's it's hard to tell. You know, mostly maybe their manager or their agent or I don't know how the system works. Sorry, you know, that's me. You know, I think at the end of the day, uh, we all have to take some form of responsibility for the choices that we make. And sometimes we make bad choices. Mm -hmm. And those bad choices shouldn't necessarily haunt us forever. And I'm talking about the people who are working on the film or worked on the film uh, in all kinds of different capacities. It's not that we are saying, oh my gosh, you're a bad person because you worked on this film. But neither can you allow for the kind of financial reward and success to go sort of out there and, and, and basically reward him for creating something that in, in a lot of ways, like, um, like was just said, we as a, as a group, uh, as, a, as an audience, we have to specifically remember that there are real people behind this particular crime this isn't like this is like she said you know it's not like it's shoplifting it's not something that's sort of a victimless crime there's something really big and insidious behind this and so that also i feel like needs to be sort of honored i, I think i would feel very similar if like i said some director 
and I think it was Ben that brought up Roman Polanski, um, it, it, you know, those kinds of allegations follow you forever. Yep. And it doesn't necessarily make you a bad filmmaker. It doesn't make you a bad writer, but it can really turn a, a body of work that is excellent against you because the public perception is you have done something really bad. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. Like, I, I want to ask Sherry this question too. Is like, should we? You know, should we be looking at the actors and the people involved in this film cross-eyed? Because, you know, maybe some of them didn't know because they have some young people that are in the movie, uh, in like early twenties or whatever. Maybe they didn't know, but I'm pretty sure some of the other actors that are in the movie, <laughs> they had to have known this. So it was a you know a big story in Hollywood. And uh, they definitely know now, that's for sure. So, yeah. uh, so I mean, should we look at those actors uh, and the, the, everybody that was involved? Should we look at them uh, funny because they chose to, you know, be in this film? I would say no. Um, I get questions of this nature a lot where people are trying to figure out um, maybe they're on a spiritual path, but then they have a job that they also do. Um, one of the perfect examples is what if you're a, um, a bill collector? What if you do collections? And, you know, people who do collections can be pretty nasty when they call you. So what if you're also on a spiritual path, but that's your job? Well, there is a separation. And I kind of feel like, you know, in this day and age with the way things are financially, um, I can't really be mad at somebody because they need to work. You still got to survive. And they're not the ones that did it. They didn't do something wrong. So the person that's working on this film, I guess I would say, they didn't do anything wrong. They shouldn't be punished. Um, this, the, he's got creativity. And what he may produce creatively may be great. And so there's that, but then there's his, there's his personal life. So I feel that anyone that makes that decision, oh, I'm going to still go ahead and I'm going to work on this film, I kind of feel like they have the right to make that choice. They have the right to decide, hey, I need to work, I need to get paid, this is a job. So, yeah, I wouldn't hold that against them. I, I definitely wouldn't. You know, also, just, just to add one more small little fact into this particular uh, situation, it's not like this is, hasn't been well known for many years. It has been well known for many years. I, the internet has a way of sort of bringing things up as if they are brand new when they're not. They're just uh, a story that has sort of been reshined. And of course, you know, there's the, the release of the movie. So that does sort of lend more to it. But the, he, this, we've known this about him for a really long time. And he was still making other movies. Um, it's Disney had a huge part in one of his movies, and there was a huge campaign to try to, you know, basically boycott Disney and say we don't want to watch any of your stuff because look at who you're supporting. These, the 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 situation is it reaches critical mass whenever it comes into 
public attention. So the people who were working on the film, I don't feel like they wouldn't have known. Of course they would have known. It's very well known kind of what is happening. The question though, and I think you brought that up really well, is look, you know, everybody's just doing the very best that they can. And sometimes those decisions may not be factoring every single possible scenario in there. And because it's been known for so long, maybe they figured that it wouldn't resurface again. I don't know. Hmm. Now, um, I found something, and uh, I'll read it. Um, it says, uh, Salva, one-time protege of Godfather director Francis Ford Coppola, was jailed for three years in 1998, serving 15 months. Uh, he did not work in Hollywood uh, for five years following his conviction, but later bounced back with the Jeepers Creepers films and, and uh, Powder. Uh, and then... Um, it talked about how somebody handed out leaflets urging the public to boycott his the Los Angeles premiere in 1995. That must be a powder. Uh, Please don't spend money on this movie. The leaflet read, uh, it would just go to line the pockets of a child molester. Uh, Jeepers Creepers 3 marks uh, the 57-year-old Salva's first major studio film since Jeepers Creepers 2 which was released in 2003. In 2006, filmmaker made a public made a public plea for forgiveness while promoting the independent film uh, the independent film uh, Peaceful Warrior. I pled guilty to a terrible crime and I'm, and I've spent the rest of my life trying to make up for it. He told the Los Angeles Times for almost 20 years, I've been involved with helping others. I've been in therapy and I've made movies, but I paid my debt to society and I, po- I apologize to the young man. And all I can uh, hope is that people will give me a chance to redeem myself. Okay, so I don't know. Does that change anything for anybody that he says this? Well, I, 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 I thought it would. <laughs> mm-hmm, go ahead. It, I, I think, you know, I think it sounds good. And, and again, you know, it, I, I feel like with that revelation, well, actually, I knew that revelation, but with, but sort of knowing that revelation and then knowing what he put into the script, it just makes it all the more fly in your face. Like, like you know, on the one hand, he's sort of kneeling in contrite, uh, apologetic, in an apologetic stance. And then on the other hand, He's basically giving everybody the middle finger saying, yeah, okay, see, see what I did? Mm. Uh, like, uh, th- there's just, there's a disconnect here that I don't quite understand. On the other hand, I, I will say this. The, the body of work that Jeepers Creepers is has a cult following to it, basically. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it, it's a good idea. It's, it's some really rich material. And faulting him for sort of the success of what he's done, that is, you know, when you said uh, disconnecting content from creator, that's sort of where the lines, I feel like, get really blurred. Because there is something, uh, it's not redeeming about his work, but there is something very compelling and entertaining about his work, which you really can't necessarily just overlook because of the fact that we don't feel like he's atoned for his sins. And also, we're not walking in his shoes. But I will say that just putting that in the script was just, it was just a, 
I mean, beyond a bad idea. Bad idea is probably the understatement of the day. Okay, this is what you were referring to. It says, in the film, uh, there's a character, the Addison is a runaway, whose estranged relationship with her stepfather is alluded to have involved sexual abuse. With, with no, while no scenes depict her molestation, two characters share an exchange in which they express sympathy for her abuser. Can you blame the stepdad, though? One character says, I mean, look at her. The heart wants what it wants. Am I right? That's what, uh, that's what, um, the, the scene that you were referring to. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the, that is the scene. And, you know, maybe it sounds kind of innocuous by itself. But putting everything into it, 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 I guess just something like this. If, if this was me, my attention to the script would be so fastidious. I mean, I would be Xing out any line that I thought would create that kind of even appearance of impropriety. Because I want my work to stand for itself and not be remembered for something that is that basically is me, not my work. Does that make sense? Right, right, yeah. That doesn't sound like someone who's, you know, contrite. I I don't think you can separate what's you and what's your work because it comes from you. That's a good point. You know what I mean? I don't think you can separate that. Um, Writers are writers of fiction are good, but it's a part of them that's being put into their work. Um, so I don't think you can separate that. It well, is, I, you know, I, it is about him. I, I guess by extension, you know, I, I've done a lot of writing myself and I, I have done things where you know, I've come up with very creative ways to kill people. That's not something that I would ever do. And it's not something that I would even experiment in my head about doing in real life. But as an author, it's definitely, look at George Martin. I don't think he's really that much of a psychopath. But on the other hand, I hear what you're saying. But on on the other hand, if I had gone to jail for murdering multiple people in very creative ways, and then I came back and wrote a script and had just sort of, you know, an offhanded glib reference to it, I would understand why people would be so upset. But here's the thing, is if, let's say you had killed people, and then you served your time, you got out, and you're a very good, you're a very creative person. And so you decided you were going to write or you were going to do screenplays, right? The question is, who does the contracts with you? Let's say it was Disney. Okay, so there's somebody who's helping you to get it out there. So isn't that who we should focus on? I think instead of telling people, don't go and watch this, I think maybe we should focus more on the people making those contracts with him. You know, like the Disney's, the Paramount Studios, they're making the contracts with these people, which is saying, oh, yeah, you did this, but we're still going to make this contract with you so that you can get this out there. I kind of feel like that's who we should be going after. That's who we should be saying, you need to stop making these contracts with people like this. Now, another question I have for the panel is, okay, say like I don't 
or anybody doesn't pay to go see it let's say they bootleg it or they just see it on cable or something is merely just watching the film is that uh supporting you know a pedophile is that you know what i mean just just the fact that you're watching the film i don't think so um I eat hamburgers, but I didn't kill the cow. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, you know, you can't really hold me responsible for the cow that died, really. But then there are some people that do feel that way. I don't. I, I'm not feeling bad about the cow that died. However, some people do. Some people do um, take their feelings about it that far. But I don't. I don't think that I would look down on a person just because they said, hey, I watched this movie. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely understand that. And, and I mean, you know, in some ways you could, there's a lot of different ways that you could look at this. Some people have an extreme uh, aversion to watching body gore, slasher movies and, you know, torture porn. Those kinds of movies really upset people. And maybe because they've had, you know, they're triggering. They've had situations in the past that have been really horribly abusive. And but the, it, it, I don't think it's not necessarily that you are a bad person or that you are supporting Victor Salva by watching his work. What I think I'm trying to say is that at your moral center, wherever that is, and however you decide that that's what you need to do those decisions can't be made by anybody else and they can't be made arbitrarily just because somebody said don't go see this or don't go watch this you have to actually really think about that i don't think though that withholding your power over your pocketbook is an option that should be overlooked if you disagree with either what he is what he stands for and say, okay, well, I can't support this. It, I, I, I mean, everybody gets to make those choices every single day. And that's just sort of the way that things are. We all make those choices. I, I don't think that there's, there's no, there's like, there's so much, uh, there's so many gray lines in here that just watching a show doesn't mean, what if you didn't know? Really, what if you really didn't know? What if you watched this on TV and didn't know? If you make the active choice and you still know everything that you know today, then that's, I think that has to cut to the center of what your morality says you should do. You know, uh, go ahead, Ben. You started to say something? Closely, actually. As for the question, would you watch something for free? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't. If I didn't support the artist or if the artist has done something absolutely horrible, I wouldn't watch it, even if it's free, because, you know, it would just kind of, honestly, it wouldn't, it would make me angry or feel disturbed. Um, for him, like when you read that scene, what he said that was kind of like that's kind of like a red flag to me if i've watched it it would it would kind of kill any and considering his history his past it kind of makes a question too and i'm looking at victor Selfa that what he said in jeepers creepers 3 um 
that's posted online all the articles just imagine the bad press it would get too um no but i don't know mm. sorry i'm just i'm just mostly listening closely but uh God, i wish i can use a good example of like really bad press you know but sometimes uh, you know what, let me go use an uh, example from a shitama. Let's go with shitin. Mm-hmm. You know how sh- you know shitin's content. Explain who he is for those. He was a German filmmaker and for iClone. His film was technically things, but his fil- he was like incredibly exploitation, a lot of nudity, a lot of this, and he had a habit of being acid edged to say the least. And his work got a lot of attention because of that. And sometimes you get people who are curious and discuss and sometimes people, you know, it's kind of, sometimes the bad press gets a lot of attention. I don't know. It's, there are some people who do watch it, but sometimes, uh, but there are some people, you know, like myself, if I know any works of, I, I wouldn't watch them if they've done like horrible things. Ben, I, I use the example of Cannibal Holocaust. Same thing. Yep. Um, I think I'll, to be honest, after I heard about Klaus Kinski, I'll never watch any of his films again. Tell, uh, tell us about that. Klaus Kinski. Yeah, and Cannibal Holocaust. Oh. Well, cl- from what I've heard, uh, Klaus Kinski attacked his daughters. I think sexually assaulted them, and it just it was disturbing as hell. But that's from what I've heard. And, and, the, and the, can, the cannibal holocaust thing was the, the, the on, basically the on-camera death and mutilation of animals. That, it, I mean, they, they didn't even hide it. You mean they really killed animals in that movie? Yeah. Um, I, you know, there were a whole, there's a whole bunch of reasons for why they did it. They had indigenous people. They actually ate the animals. I don't know. There was a whole bunch of things. But that doesn't really, it still doesn't sit well with sort of, the, it's an exploitation thing. That's what I was trying to come up with. Okay. The, 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 the core of the argument, I think, here, and will always be, and why it is different as an example uh, than some other kinds of controversies because it feels exploitative it feels like like the likes in particular victor salva is making sort of uh, a run on something that uh that really did cause somebody pain in the same way that it's exploitative to kill animals on i mean other than just being morally wrong and it, it, to me, it's kind of funny because I know a lot of people who will not watch Cannibal Holocaust under any circumstances because of that. But they're a little bit more tepid in their responses to some other things. And so, it, again, I think it just kind of comes down to where is your moral compass? Right. That's interesting. <laughs> so uh, the final takeaway with this is, um, you know, I think it should be understood exactly who... This particular filmmaker is Victor Salva. He was a man who was convicted of uh, uh, having sex with an underage boy, and he filmed it as well. And he, you know, like he was supposed to do three years. He only did 15 months, and was able to, you know, to get films made 
until I believe it I, I believe it was powder where the, it came out I, I believe that's when it broke out again what, that he was a convicted pedophile yeah. so because uh, I, I think that hurt that movie uh, the box office because it was like a big scandal at the time so you know so um, um, you know so that's that's who he is so if you want to support that film you know you know obviously i don't think anybody who will decide to go watch the film or buy it or whatever I, i'm pretty sure they're not you know supporting what he did but you know it's, just, it's something you got to give a, a long uh look at when choosing to support certain people you know um some crimes we can forgive other crimes to me are unforgivable and that's definitely an unforgivable crime so uh it's very uh interesting uh conversation and i want to thank the panel for participating and i'm going to start off with you ben uh how can people get you in social media and do you have any projects that we should be on the lookout for um yeah um my name is uh, venture and tunnel my twitter is 4413 media uh can find me at the Facebook, but um, Vimeo under Benjamin Tuttle. Um, I think that's it. I'm not sure if I should say a full closing thought on this. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Something like this. this is kind of like a heart, you know. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I didn't really care for Victor Selva's work or Jeepers Creepers. I didn't really like the film. I didn't like the second one either. So when I heard there was a third one, I just thought, uh, I don't know, but I've known that he did horrible acts and it's just kind of, it's a big turnoff for a lot of people. And but sometimes people are just interested in the horror content itself rather than the director. Maybe they don't look into it or not, but it just kind of depends on the, you know, some people look into it, some people won't, some people will still watch their directors even though they've done horrible things. Um, for me, you know, I kind of like, uh, it's more like it's here if you look at the person, you look at the art itself, but yeah, there is, there can be personal connections to films. Sometimes there's not, um, sometimes directors go in for a, you know, for a checkbook and they don't give a crap or for a check and they don't give a crap, you know, whatsoever, or sometimes they pour their heart and soul into it. It just kind of depends on the level of involvement. Victor Selva, yeah, you can tell because he had more of a hand. You could probably, so there's odds are that he'll put things in here in that scene. It quite disturbs, it makes it more disturbing. Question is, you know, should you see the content that's up to the person itself, you know? And what he did was absolutely, was, it's horrible and it's unforgiven in my eyes, you know, especially to a young child. And uh, frankly, I can't, you know, I just don't want to watch this stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Ben, for uh, for being on the show. And uh, I'm going to go to Sherry. Uh, once again, how can we get you in social media? And should we be on the lookout for anything? And I know you have a website as well. Yeah, I have a website, SherrySpeaks.com, where you can go there if you're looking to um do services like um do coachings readings um information about reiki 
energy healing. Um, and then I also have, so that's sherryspeaks.now, sherryspeaks.com. And then on Facebook, it is slash um, I am Sherry Andrea. Um, and I'm usually on Facebook. I answer questions and stuff. I'm unlike other people. I actually do answer people back. I have a YouTube channel also. So if you search me on YouTube, just search Sherry Andrea. And um, I do respond to comments and messages. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. And last but definitely not least, Jen, how can people get you in social media and uh, um, and tell us about your blog as well? Well, my blog is Critical Laughs. And just so everybody knows, we are restructuring and I'm trying to move some articles back into content. So it's a little messy right now. Um, I'm on Twitter as following bliss one. And if I can just add one quick closing thought, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I think that it is, this is a really important conversation to have and that everybody should think about these kinds of things, no matter what decision they make, this kind of thinking is the critical thinking that we all need to have in, in relation to the entertainment that we consume. We're consumers, we demand the content, the content gets delivered to us based on that demand. So we are in control. We have to, we really have to think about that. Very well said, thank you so much. Um, and uh, of course you can get me on Twitter at Kente F and our website, IndyRadio.org. That's IndyRadio.org. I will be back uh, next week with an all new episode and more uh, interesting conversation. I want to uh, uh, wish you guys a great weekend and God bless.